Let us pray. God, please quiet our distracted thoughts. Help us to know your truth in our hearts. Help us to listen for your wisdom and your word written for us many years ago, but for this very moment. Amen. Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning comes from Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. Listen to God's word for us. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my hands shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 20. Listen again to God's word for us. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second, then the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in the age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, Indeed, they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is the God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered Jesus, teacher, you have spoken well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love, grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our passage this morning from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was in the temple at the end of his earthly ministry. He would shortly be arrested and crucified for crimes that he did not commit. And in this moment, he was in the temple 
preaching about the good news of God's coming kingdom. And I imagine his message was similar to the one he had proclaimed three years before in Nazareth at the start of his ministry, when he said that the words of Isaiah were fulfilled as follows. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or perhaps Jesus was maybe sharing the message of the good news that is recounted in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As we know, many Pharisees, scribes, and priests did not find Jesus' message to be warranted or safe. The Sadducees, in particular, thought that he was a risk to outright rebellion and sharp retribution from the Romans. As temple priests, the Sadducees' focus was primarily on this life and on maintenance of their people as a nation and on the proper and due worship of God through the temple. And as recounted in John 11, they feared, quote, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And that's presumably because Jesus might incite a rebellion, whether he meant to or not. So the Sadducees' concern was for safety and for security for this life, and that was only heightened by the fact that they did not believe in the resurrection. In their question that they put to Jesus about the resurrection, it was intended, as many of these kinds of questions were, as a trap. It was supposed to make Jesus look foolish. It was supposed to make him lose support of the growing crowds in Jerusalem that were gathering for Passover. And by this point, Jesus had been preaching a lot in the temple. Um, and, but as Luke 19 reads, the elders, they could not find a way to capture him and kill him because all the people hung on all his words. So the Sadducees, they unleashed a carefully crafted hypothetical on Jesus in order to make his teaching about the resurrection, one which he actually shared with a lot of Pharisees, to make that teaching look ridiculous. And their question was based on a law in the Torah that if a married man dies without a child, his wife, now widow, has a right and a claim on his brother to marry her, and that the firstborn son would then carry on the name and be the heir of the deceased brother. This was something that a brother could refuse to do, but in doing so, he would be seen as violating a duty to his family. And the Sadducees' scenario of this situation happening seven times in a row without a son being born, again, it was intended to ridicule and to point out the absurdity of the idea of resurrection where presumably in this scenario there would be seven brothers all fighting over who was married to the woman for eternity. But that said, the ridiculousness of the scenario depended on a few assumptions. One, that the Torah does not grow with new circumstances, such as resurrection. Two, that resurrected bodies would be precisely the same as the bodies that we have now. And three, that marriage would be built around progeny and property, 
uh, still, that that would still be an ordering principle of community in the resurrection. And Jesus' response to the Sadducees is essentially that those assumptions that they are making about resurrected life are just misguided. And in particular, the idea of marriages built around securing offspring, securing progeny and their property, and trying to mitigate the failures on this front due to death. Those are not really things that are going to be going on in the life of the resurrection to come. Jesus says, in fact, that like angels in heaven, people wouldn't die anymore. So there'd be no need to be having offspring. And furthermore, the focus will be more squarely on God's glory in community with one another. Now, from a Jewish perspective, resurrection was the idea of flesh and blood literally coming back onto bone at the critical and culminating judgment day. There were disagreements within the Jewish community about precisely what resurrection entailed uh, and that whether it even happened, as, an ev- as is evidenced by the fact that the Sadducees themselves rejected this idea of there being a resurrection. Many Pharisees, though, like Jesus, embraced the idea of resurrection. And while there was uncertainty about what precisely happened at death, whether and if so how, one was resting in some spiritual capacity with God and awaiting resurrection, the thought was that God would raise the righteous from the grave. And Jesus pressed this idea with the Sadducees by highlighting highlighting that in the burning bush, God himself when he told Moses to tell the Israelites uh, that it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who sent Moses to free them from slavery, Jesus argues that in saying this, God was demonstrating in some sense that these three patriarchs, though dead on earth, were not dead and gone completely, but they were alive in and with God. When God was talking to Moses, he didn't mean, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when they were alive, as we might say about a deceased friend, I was her friend. But Jesus is arguing that Moses was hearing God say, I am their God. As Jesus stressed, God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And this idea of being with God, being in the presence of God, immediately after death, this also pops up in the New Testament, of course. It's well expressed in Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, where he notes that while he has work to do, there's part of him that is ready after so many years of toil and ministry to simply depart and be with Christ. Similarly, when Jesus is on the cross, and he says to the thief who's right next to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. There is this sense testified to in scripture that even immediately upon death, we are warmly in the embrace of God. But where are people if that's the case after death? We should note that in asking that question, we're asking a question that is above all of our pay grades, But there are some things that we can say that are worthy of note. The spiritual dimension to existence is something that could pervade and course through all of existence without our being able to perceive it in any easily managed 
material sense. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis even plays with the idea that perhaps this spiritual dynamic, uh, the spiritual aspect of existence, is like the connection and interaction between some imaginary two-dimensional world and the third dimension. And by analogy along this line, there's perhaps a three-dimensional depth to reality that we could not perceive through two-dimensional senses. And this depth to reality is arguably a far more useful way of thinking about heaven for us today than height, or then thinking about the heavens in a vertical sense, as the way our ancestors did. We know that God is not in the atmosphere, God is not in outer space, but rather that God pervades through all of space. So the spiritual realm is a deeper state of being than the one we can see with our eyes or hear with our ears directly, but it is one that is always ever present to us, just as if we were living a 2D existence and the spiritual realm is 3D. And it's similar as well to how Jesus responded to the Pharisees when they asked him about how the kingdom of God was going to come. And Jesus responded quite famously, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is within you. In some manner, in some capacity, Jesus and Paul in the scriptures attest to the fact that there is this spiritual dimension and that we live on in God even immediately upon death. But sisters and brothers, they also affirm that that's not the end of the story. That this resting in peace with God is simply a step en route to resurrection. As Paul writes later in his letter to the Philippians, Quote, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul makes a similar move and argument in 1 Corinthians 15 with his affirmation that Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of those who will be raised from the dead. That is, Christ's resurrection was the beginning of a harvest of the world's resurrection at the end of time. Now this admittedly can be all hard to envision, hard to wrap our heads around. But thankfully, one of the most powerful images that we have of this idea of resurrection is actually sitting right there in scripture for us. It comes from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, the famous passage of the dry bones, which reads, The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. 
I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy mortal and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, a vast multitude. While this imagery of resurrection might feel a bit like we were a child imagining life outside the womb. Or, as Paul notes, it might feel like we were looking through a mirror dimly. We can get even more glimpses uh, into what resurrection is in light of Christ's resurrection and what we know about it through the witness of the apostles as testified to in scripture. We could consider Luke 24, which recounts Jesus appearing to the 12 disciples, and while he could do things that a normal body, one of our bodies, could not do, he could pass through doors, he could appear and disappear, he could go into the sky, clearly he was raised from the dead. While he did all those things, he also did things that were deeply physical and embodied in the ways that we're used to. And biblical scholar N.T. Wright says that Jesus' resurrected body was, quote, transphysical, meaning it's a physical body, but one that is no longer limited by time and space, as well as by death and decay. It's perhaps like a three-dimensional body interacting in a two-dimensional world. But we can consider all the kinds of interaction that he was doing with the disciples that are things that we would recognize. And this is also in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. The disciples were startled and frightened when they saw Jesus, thinking that he was a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? That might be my favorite part. <laughs> and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And then Jesus went on to explain how his life and his death and his resurrection all fulfilled the scriptures, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which all testified to the way that, quote, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And Jesus told his disciples that you all are witnesses of these things. 
So sharing in our common humanity, both in life and in the resurrected life, taking on flesh and dwelling among us, sharing in our joys amidst the delights of created existence, like sharing a meal together, and also crying with us in pain in the midst of the pervasive slings and sorrows of this life, such as the crucifixion. Christ becoming part of creation was crucial for our salvation. And by becoming part of the world, uh, God is able to take on the coldness of our sin and our death and infuse us with the life-giving warmth and reconcilia- of reconciliation and right relationship with God. The blazing righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is able to melt, remold, forge us into the people we were always intended to be, no matter how frigid and frozen we'd become or are or would be in our sins, absent Christ. Christ took on cold death upon himself and shepherded us into the burning light of life. Now, many theologians have asked whether God could have saved us in another manner. A cosmic snap of the fingers would certainly have seemed to have been a little bit easier. But to some extent, as far as we can see, as far as is testified to us through the scriptures by the apostles, by Christ himself, coming incarnate is how God, in his infinite wisdom, elected to save us. But there does always remain the question of why we should grant any of this credence. Is all of this just wishful thinking? Is it just wishful thinking that death is not the last word? That the universe is not simply some vast, meaningless expanse that will eventually snuff out all life as it either drifts apart into infinite frozenness or ultimately retracts into a crushing singularity. It can seem like wishful thinking that a good creator God not only made this world of which we are a part, but also has redeemed us to an ultimate restoration of creation, redeemed us to a place where every tear is wiped away, where mourning and crying will be no more, where death is swallowed up forever, where the Prince of Peace will reign irresistibly and infinitely as every sword has been beaten into a plowshare and every spear into a pruning hook. That can seem like wishful thinking. But the pushback that this is just a wish, it seems to be less about resurrection itself than the idea that there is a good creator who wants to see us flourish. Because if one grants that there is a good, all-powerful creator, God of the living, who crafted each one of us to flourish and thrive in God's goodness and abundance, then it's not that far of a leap to say that this God would and could raise us from the dead and bring all of those who die in the interim into his warm embrace until the day of resurrection. If God is a good creator, God of the living, it's not too far of a leap to say that God could come incarnate, take on flesh to become God with us as one of us to rescue us from the train wreck of our wayward hearts. And in his book, Death and the Afterlife, a theological introduction, a professor of theology named Terence Nichols notes as well along these lines that ultimately the case for resurrection of Jesus and by extension the rest of us by grace 
Ultimately, that case rests on the witness of the apostles and the disciples. And not just on their words, but on their changed lives as well. The disciples scattered during Jesus' crucifixion. And yet, very shortly thereafter, they were willing to be imprisoned for the belief that Jesus was truly Lord and Messiah, raised from the dead. They were willing to be persecuted and put to death for this belief. And yet none of them, as far as we know, renounced their belief in Jesus' resurrection. None of them confessed that this was really a made-up conspiracy or an attempt at wish fulfillment dreamed up by Jesus' disappointed followers. They were convicted and convinced that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And they persuaded many others of this belief. If God is the good creator, the God of the living, the presence of God is always with us, and in death God draws us nearer and more directly into the spiritual realm as we await the resurrection and the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And if God is a good creator, God of the living, we can proclaim with comfort the answer to the first question of 16th century Heidelberg Catechism, which goes as follows. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He, has, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.